1: plushcare.com slash
2: what a mess it is to wait by the phone that someone's going to ring and give you permission to live your life the only person that really can do that is you so the phone
1: is never going to ring so you should be the one ringing that is Michael Lawrence and this is episode 174 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast And thank you to Toe Hider, as always, for that fantastic intro music. This is episode 174 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thanks for being here. Today's show is with Michael Lawrence. He is the co-founder of Garage Entertainment. More about him in a moment. He's a filmmaker. He's an exciting guy. Uh, thanks heaps for everyone that supports the show. Uh, for as little as five bucks a month, you can support the show on Patreon. This show is brought to you by many people just like yourselves who support the show on Patreon for as little as five bucks a month, up to 100, whatever you want. There's... Skype calls at 100, there's Skype calls at 50, different lengths of Skype calls, all kinds of stuff you can uh, pledge uh, each week, each month, I should say. Uh, as little as five bucks will get you exclusive episodes. Uh, by uh, exclusive, I mean they're only for people who pledge money. So, yeah, there's another one coming uh, at the start of next week. I put the new episodes up at the start of every month, new exclusives. So, yeah, it really helps me to helps me push the show forward uh, another thing if you don't have five bucks spare a month that's totally fine just show someone else how to listen to a podcast and perhaps even just tell someone or show someone how to listen to this show and that does help me enormously thank you so much for everyone that sent a podsy in through the week a podsy is a photograph taken while you're listening to this show so whatever phone you're listening to this on that's got probably got a camera on it take a photo send it to me uh tag me on in instagram or snapchat or uh send osher gmail.com is my email address. Thanks for all the emails that came in this week. It's always nice to hear from you. I hope your week was good. Hope everything's going okay for you. I had uh I had day 1 again this week. Um day 1 is after uh, usually a rock bottom and th- this day 1 day, my rock bottom was like, "Oh fuck, that's it. I'm done. I have to have to have to go back to gym." It's been so long with my busted hip and my busted shoulder. i missed running. I need to get strength so I can strengthen my hip up again so I can run again. I've got to go back to gym. So I had day one of the gym. And that involves taking a shirt off, having a photo, standing on scales, getting the tape measure put around you, all that kind of stuff. Doing squats with an empty bar and realizing I can only do eight of them. You know, and last time I was doing that stuff, it was way more than that. I couldn't do eight without stopping. And I've, you know, I tried as hard as I could to not let my brain go, well, fuck this. I can't do anything. Instead, I tried super hard to, like, kind of have a live updating, res- reframing going on in my head, going, all I have to gain is strength in my head. As Brando, who, who runs the gym, said, uh, the best thing about being weak is that anything you do will make you stronger. So here I am. I'm trying to do anything I can to make me stronger. I'm resolving to, and I'll tell you now, this is day four, I'm resolving to do 100 days in a row of just looking after myself. That means trying to exercise at least once a day and just look after myself in terms of what I eat. And I'm going to see what happens. 100 days is the 1st of July. So let's see what happens. Could be interesting. Uh, the medication shift that I've been talking to you about is going, continuing to go well. However, however I have found that I'm I'm a little more spiky around the edges uh, than normal, and I guess this week I'm looking to find those precious milliseconds between hearing something and reacting to it, so I don't say the wrong thing because the wrong things come out a few times, or the right things come out but with the wrong tone of voice, and uh, I've noticed that I'm I've been turning a few people off. I have to be careful about that, so. The cycling helps. Anything that keeps me kind of tired helps. Um, but look, yesterday—oh my goodness! So yesterday, I'm recording this on a Sunday. Yesterday, I was at Georgia's water polo match. Uh, I love Saturday sport. It's the best thing I get to do all week. I absolutely love taking her around and um, watching her water polo. It was the grand final. They had a big, uh, big game, and we—it was the classic. Like it was like a straight out of a teen movie. We we went to the super fancy suburb with the super fancy school like the old money bags part of town with the old money bag school. And they have this Taj Mahal, this water polo star factory where, you know, there's massive posters on the walls of their, their students, the girls school. And so our team walks in and they're the, kind of like the underdogs and their team's got, you know, heaps of kids and, you know, really fancy uniforms and all that kind of stuff. But they had their own schools, coaches refereeing the game. So one of the girls who was refereeing the game was the coach from the opposition team, the team that George's team was playing last week. So that team has two coaches and one of them was the referee. And so the, the, all the decisions were going the way of the of the fancy school. Never, the whole time I watched Water Polo, have I ever gone over and said anything. But I went over the official's desk and I said, hey, can you sort this out? Like all the penalties are going their way. It's just, it's not okay. And uh, I just got so fired up. And anyway, it was 4-0 after the first quarter, and the girls came back, and they got beaten 5-6. Uh, so they got beaten by one after an incredibly difficult first quarter. And uh, Anyway, the refs changed out and all kinds of stuff. But I was fired up. And I thought, right, just don't say anything. <laughs> you just say the wrong thing. And I could feel my heart was beating. I could feel my pulse in my neck. just don't say anything i had to go outside and just breathe man it's school water polo there's other things to get fired up about but yeah i was wrangling that one i had to breathe deeply as i drove home (laughs) so let me quickly tell you about my guest today he's a great guy michael lawrence is the co-founder of garage entertainment you can go and check out their website right now it's garageentertainment.com.au it's i guess it's kind of like netflix for action sports they have the world's largest action adventure film and tv collection okay so anything like three thousand films or more i think uh, involving anything is like surfing snow sports water sports cycling anything that involves humans adventure and defying gravity in some way or the other, and elements, so extremes of heat or cold. You'll find films about it at garageentertainment.com.au, and it's the biggest collection of these films online in the world. Uh, Michael is also most notably, uh, from a lot of people would probably know, his landmark documentary, Bra Boys, Blood is Thick in the Water, the film that uh, was narrated by Russell Crowe about the uh, Maroubra surf culture and uh, the... Uh, group of gentlemen called the Braboys, uh, which we do talk about in this conversation. michaels he's a really nice guy. He's a passionate storyteller. He's a very astute businessman, and he's a visionary in the field of, of digital distribution. He, he came into my kitchen, and he sat down and went, oh, I like what you're doing here. This is good. No middleman. Just get it straight to the people. Yeah, he got it straight away uh, with the podcasting scenario. It was really good. Uh, he's got a great story to tell. I'm really grateful that he came over on a Thursday afternoon to tell this story, um, so please enjoy this cup of tea and a chat about all things that happen south of Coogee and north of Botany Bay with Mr. Michael Lawrence. Welcome to my house, Michael. Michael, uh, or Mick, uh, whatever. It's your show, man. What do you want on the artwork? Uh, uh, I Mick's fine. We're, we're fast friends now. <laughs> <laughs> so welcome. I'm glad you're here, man. Thank you. I apologize. I am in the first coffee of the day. It is uh twenty past, twenty-five past two, and when we shoot batch, we do them uh, we do them overnight. Right.
2: Why do you think do you think the world is
1: obsessed with finding love? Do you think the reason why we're uh, it looks certainly it's certainly hot at the moment, isn't it? There's Married at First Sight, there's Bride and Prejudice, there's the American Bachelor, there's Bachelorette. In the States they do Bachelor of Paradise, Bachelor Pad. Um, yeah, there's a lot. And
2: is, it, is that a, a statement about where we're at? Well, I think it, it
1: is because, I mean, I got this job because I was single after getting divorced and was suddenly dating again in this world of, I mean, the last time I was single, Facebook hadn't even been invented. I was still on the T9, you know, I was still lining <laughs> shit up on a T9, you know, one thumb while driving. Uh, T 9s an old texting protocol, folks. Don't worry, it was before. Right correct? And now suddenly, I'm in this world of iPhones and selfies and being able to do research and looking back at someone's pictures and yeah, okay, you know, yeah. and swiping left and swiping right. And so I, de- I developed up a dating show, in the studio dating show, because I was like, I was unemployed. I was like, fuck this, I've got to make a job for myself. So I made up a dating show that I could host, and I came down to Australia and I pitched it, and Ten bought it in the room, and which is awesome. And we went into development. And then about 10 weeks later, they said, hey, remember how you said you want to come down here for three months and shoot a dating show because I was living in America at the time? And I said, yeah. They said, well, look, we just, you know, we've just secured The Bachelor. Do you want to host it? i like, yes, I do. <laughs> and so and my, is
2: your dating show coming?
1: No, my dating show went away. Which well, is fair still, enough. Well, no, I'd still like to see it. is fair enough. Oh, yeah. It's a goodie. It's a, it's a goodie, but it's in studio. Right. So maybe now is the time. The I mean, perfect match was a... Uh, uh, a uh, category over time and yeah. created and you'd be a good host. Uh mate, that, well that's what it, that was what it was all about. And so I certainly think now that there's this proliferation in uh, matching techniques and algorithms such as match.com use. Um, and I've been to a Tinder wedding, you know. Have you? Oh yeah. Like this is a well there was a Tinder baby at the Tinder wedding. <laughs> I spoke to the marketing director of tinder and they were threatening to use
2: the tagline which i thought was brilliant was don't blame us if you fall in love that's a pretty
1: good one you were dtf but something else happened along the way yeah
2: it's almost like its own show
1: yeah so i think that would be why it is and that dating is no more this kind of thing that we try for hang on frank just to pieces and hump it
2: where's humpy panda Where's Panda? Frank, Frank for everyone is the dog, yeah. not, not the next door neighbour. No, no, they're familiar with Frank. <laughs> okay. Um,
1: but after, ah, ah, ah. where's Panda? Give me Panda. Where's Panda? Give me Humpy Panda. He, um, he. Uh, it's all this dating talk. Well, yeah. After Frank eats, he loves to he loves to throw uh, either the pig or the panda around for about ten minutes, and then he shags it for a bit, <laughs> and then boom, he's out for a couple of hours. There he is.
2: Love that guy. Yeah. There you go, Panda.
1: There you go, Panda's yeah. in trouble now. Kung Fu Panda. Uh, so I think that might be it, you know. And I, I think that it might be the fact that the kind of dating of multiple partners that used to only be available to people who had a certain set of social skills and a social, certain way of uh, of, of looking and appearing in public um, is now much more accessible to regular folks. And, yes. Um, Or was I reading the other day? It was an extreme statistic, but it was a doctor in Darlinghurst talking about um, he's seeing patients with, uh, you know, who aren't being very careful when they're doing this sort of stuff, but they're lining up um, 10 shags a day. Yeah, I know. I flinch when I think about it, but they're absolutely, you know, lining it up at that that volume. Um, Whereas these sorts of things used to be only reserved if you're in a rock and roll band or a pro surfer or 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 something. Would he consider that? A problem, an addiction at that level, at ten a day. Uh, I would say if you're if you are having sex with ten people a day and you're not a sex worker or in a funk band
2: <laughs>
1: uh, or on the golf tour, or on the golf <laughs> tour. Let's be honest. Um, yeah, you might want to have a long, hard look at yourself. Yes. Um,
2: what are you looking for?
1: Well, yeah, you probably aren't going to find it. Wherever you're looking, yeah, it's just a vagina. It's not a portal to the next no, no. level. It's, it's there is not no a numbers up. game. No, <laughs> it's not a numbers game, <laughs> or a penis. It's just a penis. It's not. It's not. A, it's not a. It's an Easter Island totem that is sacred and full of uh, magic and mystery. Um, so, just this is. Int- I'm so glad you're over here. I've wanted to talk to you for some time because what you are doing and what you have done. As much what we're doing right now was probably something as like Tinder, probably wouldn't have been able to been done, fifteen years ago, twenty years ago. Like if I was wanting to, you know, broadcast, do what we're doing right now, I'd need access to, at least a couple of hundred thousand dollars worth of broadcast equipment and a license. Yes, an FM license or an AM license, or a really good tape duplicating machine and a postage franking machine. You know, I just wouldn't be able to do it. No, but now I can because of the technological uh, windows that have all kind of aligned. So, but let's just rewind a little. Are you, we're in Bronte, which is a suburb of Sydney right now. Are you originally from this part of the world? I'm from Maroubra. Oh. Went to Maroubra Bay High School.
2: Wow. So, do you have uh, a tattoo? No, I don't have the tattoo, but um, a lot of the people that we grew up with obviously were an important part of that movement. We're talking and, about
1: the Bra boys. Uh, yeah. Now, what was it like growing up in Maroubra? Uh, I think we're about, we're about the same, age. So what was yep. it like growing up in the Maroobah in the late 70s, early 80s? Uh, there's a lot of housing it, commission. When I ride my bike through there, there's still a lot of housing commission yeah, houses it's around the,
2: there. there's um, no parking meters in Maroobah. It's one of the only beaches in Sydney because it was protested that there is a lot of housing commission and single mums and the beach should be free. And it's been a great outlet for, you know, young men and women to kind of focus on a beach lifestyle and, and still no parking means today. The barbecues are free and they still kind of got that sense of community about it. has always been the number one fashion colour was black and it's still probably black. And it's um, been a tough place as far as it's not that everyone um, is looking to cause trouble, but it's uh, people are real and honest and when you come from a lot of working class background, they don't do that kind of Bondi or, you know, Hollywood thing. They're, you know, real people.
1: Right. Well, one would argue there are real people everywhere. <laughs> uh, but less people who have disposable income to yeah. uh, enhance what's actually going on with a, a nice pair of shoes that they only use to step out of the house in.
2: Well, it's a, but it's an interesting melting pot because you have the housing commission on one side of Malabar Road. And then you have um, houses valued between ten and fourteen million across the road, and those all those kids all play together. Right. And I love the classless nature of Maruba in that you know my son growing up, one of his best friends' dad's a brain surgeon, and the other one was being raised by his grandmother and never met his dad, and it didn't affect it. um they were just best friends.
1: What? What was going to high school there like? Ah. Uh, you don 't know what you don 't know, like it was
2: just normal you know at lunchtime you dodged the piss bombs being thrown from the toilets and you kind of managed to it just felt you know it wasn 't scary it was i suppose not politically correct, and it was a bit tough, but it wasn 't um, anything that I look back and say, "Oh we had it we were disadvantaged we loved it it was right next to the beach, you go down the beach at lunchtime.
1: Yeah. You surfed before school, it was a great place to go to school. Oh my god, surfing before school. For someone growing up in Brisbane, that's just mind blowing. Well you know, you watch any kind of T V in Australia and it's pretty much all focused around where the people who make the TV live, so it's Sydney or Melbourne. Growing up in Brisbane, he's like, I don't I don't do that. Like <laughs> who gets to do that? Why are you wearing a jumper in the summertime? Like when you saw people in the cricket in Melbourne playing, Why are you wearing a sweater? It's fucking thirty eight degrees outside. Um was there, it was still fairly racially diverse when you were growing up there, wasn't
2: it? Yeah, it still is now. Like, um, everyone at school came from a variety of backgrounds, you know, a lot of Greeks and Italians, um, I suppose later Vietnamese, but it was a melting pot of every kind of culture.
1: Yeah.
2: And, um, many indigenous
1: should... kids you go to school
2: with? Uh, we played football against La Perouse, and there wasn't that many that came to River Bay. They were mainly at La um, kind of La Perouse area and Matraville High. Mm. And so um, really great sportsman it was always scary playing rugby against them or cricket. Yeah. So because just – and that was the time of the Yellow Brothers and there couldn't have been bigger kind of sort of stars in rugby than those guys.
1: All right. I'm trying to equate it to uh, a suburb in Brisbane called – that had like I guess a similar socioeconomic makeup, um but less beach, uh, <laughs> a place called Inala. Right out in, out in western in the western Brisbane, very similar in that there's the you know there's the jail just there. It's like right there, and you know the school teachers would point at it if you're a naughty boy or a naughty girl, uh, because you know that's where you'll bloody end up along with your bloody dad. <laughs> oh,
2: that's an incentive, isn't it?
1: <laughs> Career advice. Oh. Uh, but my mum did um, family medicine uh, in Anala, and so she would come home every day just with the thousand yard stare talking about. I'll never forget one day she said, I had to explain to a 14-year-old girl today how she got pregnant. Wow. Yeah. The girl didn't even know how she, got, how she was four months pregnant. Wow. Yeah. Was there anything like that?
2: Um, yeah, I think it was a lot of people left in year 10. Yeah. Um, the, I'd say only a third of the school at the time stayed on to year 11 and 12. The idea of going to university wasn't really talked about. Everyone was yeah. trying to get a job in a bank or get a trade or something. And I look at it now, the way our kids are being raised and they're going to uni and they're doing this and they're doing that, it wasn't, just, it was, right. wasn't like that.
1: Yeah, I remember even, even in my school in Brisbane, which is a super middle-class, mega all-boys school where everyone's dad was a lawyer uh, or a doctor, which my folks were, uh, no one left in grade 10. No one left in grade 10. And, but a lot of the state school kids in Brisbane did. What do you want, buddy? How did he do that? Oh, he's just got the skills. He wants to play fetch. Can't play fetch now, Frank. I'm busy talking. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and Brisbane's changed, though, now. Oh, it's, Brisbane's
1: just f- crazy now. It's, it's a completely different place. A I, lot of Sydneysiders are moving to Brisbane. Mate, I, when I lived there, there was something like a thousand Victorian families a week moving there. It was bananas. So much so that I'm pretty sure the states had to... Um, agree on a transfer of the Medicare levies that people had paid for 20 years in Victoria and then moving their growing families to Queensland where the infrastructure that was built for them in Victoria isn't. And then suddenly, no, you know, it. they're putting all this pressure on the health system up there and a Queensland Premier, Premier had to go, come on, Victoria, throw us a, throw us a bone. We can't. And did they? Yeah, they had to. Yeah, it's incredible. and. You know, you look at something like the um, AFL. I mean, I'm only just going off my observations of it. When the AFL came to Brisbane, it was like, what the fuck is this? And why is it on the Gold Coast? You know, what's this weird game that isn't league? And now, you know, Lions will sell out. Well, they're not down because they're not winning, but Lions would sell out um, the GABA, you know, which is 40,000, 50,000 people. And
2: the suburb where your mum worked is sort of that been gentrified
1: and it's oh, different? A little. A little. I think through careful town planning. They've managed to keep it pretty isolated. Right. Yeah. No, Queensland's got its own history of, of keeping classes where they are. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens with the jail because
2: there's rumours that if they could move it, the property value on that headland would, I have to say, be close to a billion dollars. I would not
1: argue with that. It's, uh, I ride past there a lot. That's a very very popular place to ride bicycles for a middle-aged man in Lycra like myself. <laughs>
2: They're and, called mammals,
1: aren't they? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, the, the jail is, I, I think back then they were like, who wants to live by the ocean? It's yeah. too windy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so they, they, and there's a rifle range out there as well, which I think they tried to build a club med on for they a did. while. The, 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 uh, in the 1990s, it was going, the South River was going to be turned into a club med. And everyone got together and went, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. Uh yeah, that jail. I mean, they've already changed that, uh, the military establishment that was down there. Right. Has already, you know, they've sold a lot of that property off and around Little Bay and around there.
2: And the word on the street is the tram will go out
1: to now, La Perouse. That would be amazing. Wouldn't that be amazing? Yes. Yeah, so totally. the irony
2: of it is that in 1910, I think it was still going out there and they dismantled it. Yeah. And now they're building it again. But-
1: Whoever got the idea <laughs> that pulling the trams out of the ground, I don't know, man. I don't know, there's a, there's a conspiracy theory in the States that it was the uh, a conglomerate of uh, either shell companies or something like that run by um, Ford and Rockefeller. Yes. Who pulled the red line out a, of the ground. A the,
2: taxi driver told me this story yeah. in L.A. Yeah. They that pulled, they actually bought it mm, and... Pulled it out of the ground. No, they actually made it run badly for three years and started their own lobby group to get it dismantled and widened the roads because the
1: trams wouldn't run on time. And then they want us to sell more cars. Oh man. No, that's capitalism gone wrong, oh, I think. Well welcome mate. Look at it. <laughs> Jesus, look at it now. So at what point was it was it the kind of thing you, you grew up I mean you make you make action films now. How early were you when did you see water housing? When was the first uh, time you touched one?
2: No, we I kind of been growing where we did, I didn't know how to make films or what to do. And so it was a really strange time. So I started my best friend um, with one of his first paychecks bought a, you know, a handicam And we started making short films at 16 and 17 from his kind of
1: apprentice paycheck. Now, as this a is a, just for the format. Was it, was it a high eight? <laughs> yeah. High eight. Wow. Which was, I mean, they used to make, the light like, show was yeah. high eight. Wonder World was shot on high eight. Yeah, it was it was uh it was the technology, I suppose today, like a
2: canon 5 d it was mm. and it was acceptable, and people could make stuff on it, and so we that would started broadcast that, it yeah, 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 that would broadcast it like. and from that um,
1: what kind of short films
2: um, mainly just comedies, and then I got into uni and everything we did would be a film ah. and so like when we had an advertising project, we'd make our own ads, and uh, you know it was kind of I suppose a bit working dog. Uh, Yeah. And then from that, um, I kind of drifted into. What'd you do at Yanni? uh, Business. All right. And um, at UTS, it wasn't even a university when we went there, it was called the Institute of Technology. Yeah. And um, a a career lady handed a brochure out at Maribor as the first and last time I saw her, and I saw that course and said that would be awesome at 15 and worked towards getting into that degree. And so did that and didn't know how to get into the film industry. So I wrote a script um, that the first thing I ever wrote got optioned out of um, LA. <laughs> and I thought, this is easy. This is all you do. And it never got made. Uh, I went to LA and had meetings about it and lived there for a little while and realised that just because you write something, you're so far back in the process of what's going on. And a bit like you with the setup here, you need to take control. Of what you're doing, so I decided to get into more producing and, and actually sort of raising money or putting my own money into making things happen. So hang on, how old were you when you wrote the script and what was it about? 21. Yeah. And so that would be close to 30 years ago and it was about fat kids at a fat camp and Disney wanted to make it into their version of, um, you know, Wonder Years meets Stand By Me. Oh, was it was a series? It was it was the, the tone of Wonder Years but it was kind of the the more fat version of Stand By Me. Wow. And so I learnt a lot from that and got paid to adjust the script and I'm there going, this is pretty awesome. How did you even get it to L.A. back then? I gave it to a guy that was moving to L.A. and was going to go to a party when he got there.
0: Get the fuck (laughs) out of here.
2: And then he gave it to a girl that he started dating who was Hans Zimmer's um, had set up a production company called Remote Control Pictures. Hanson was uh,
1: the music guy yep. that you know from Batman. Multi-Oscar dun, 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 dun.
2: Like winning. Bwah. He needs a house for his Oscars. Yeah. And he had his own production company and they optioned it straight away and started paying me to write it. And then when I realised it wasn't going to happen, my wife said, my girlfriend now wife said, let's put some money aside and start making short films that you can produce and write and direct yourself. And so we did that and shot on 16 mil and kept making stuff. And I was lucky enough to meet a lot of really good people along the way because I think the greatest advice you can get is ask for help and get good mentors. So Glenis Rowe, who is a very established producer and her husband, Chris Noonan, that wrote and directed Babe and did a lot of Kennedy Miller They became my film mentors and um, kind of we started working on a project together and then my wife said, why don't you talk to the boys and look at helping make a story on Maroubra? And And that's how kind of I felt like I'd done enough boot camp and knew how things worked that I approached the guys and said... Let's see what we can do. And they wanted to make a documentary, and so we put a team together and we all went and made that for a few years.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's a very, I'm going to have to rewind on that a bit. There's a bit in there to pick apart. Uh, Let's talk about the mentoring thing. Let's talk about who, when did you realise that, why a mentor is important?
2: If, in every point, I think there's a transfer of information that needs to happen. And good people get a point when they've achieved enough they want to share how they did it and that's why they're good people. So my advice to people that are looking to break into any industry, whether it be fashion, film, music, is target people that you love their work, find out whether they're kind of um, open to it and ask them to be your mentor and work for them for free and share with them but never overstep the mark or become difficult and you'll be surprised how many people will help you.
1: So you did a bit of work for free?
2: Yeah, I I did everything that they needed me to do and and as far as worked on the script and did stuff and paid my own way and and they loved the fact that I was hungry and but fair on the boundaries that I'm not their sort of responsibility. I've got to do my own thing, but you'll find everyone everything we've ever done when you ask for help if the cause is right and the subject matter is truthful and, you know, inspiring anyone will help
1: you and what about the idea of you spoke about you and your girlfriend had this idea well she had the idea you've got to you got to just take control of it and make your own thing when did the idea of you know making your own work come along and not waiting for the knock on the door it came from going to LA and realizing what a mess
2: it is to to wait by the phone and that someone's going to ring and give you permission to live your life And the only person that really can do that is you. So the phone is never going to ring. So you should be the one ringing. And that was how it started. And then from there, it's just snowballed. So, and that includes everything from asking, you know, getting a chance to get Russell Crowe to narrate the film, getting Joel Edgerton to narrate the next film. Whenever we've asked for help, People have always been there and said, I believe in what you're doing and, and that can be anyone from a business or a celebrity or an actor or a financier. If they believe in your cause, they will help you usually.
1: And is that the difference when you pick up the phone because you're, you're doing a lot of proactive, you're, you're the one knocking on the door? Yes. And it is, um, I have it was a painful lesson I had to learn. Uh, that you know, I just described earlier about getting this batch gig. Yep. All, everything that you see around you is because I went out and I didn't wait for the <laughs> ship to come to me. I uh, swam out. What's the difference when you pick up the phone? What's the difference behind what you're saying when people say "Yes" versus when people say no?
2: Um, no one ever really says no. They usually lead you to a path that you were meant to hit. if you If your pitch is bigger than you, if the reason why you're doing something is greater than you, um, and if you're trying to they can see what you're doing will make a difference, that's the way you sell things. It's not about you. You're being pulled in a direction beyond you and you're just a servant to the material or the outcomes that you've made possible for everyone in the team and then everyone will say, oh, you should ring that guy or I will help you. So when it comes to making a film, I usually explain why I'm making the film and why I think it's important and the team that I've built around it and why they think it's important and everyone goes, I get it. That's what the project is. That's the message. I want to help you. It's never
1: about me or it's always about the team and the project. And... You said when you, people say no, it's a path you were supposed to get to anyway. Can you take me through, like, maybe what one of those phone calls was like?
2: Um, well, I'll give you a gr- great example. Um, when we were doing Fighting Fear, which was a kind of follow-up to a Bra Boys, I wanted to find a, another narrator who was going to be right on for that material. And we talked about um, Joel Edgerton early, but we thought, no, let's shoot for the stars. Let's go and maybe get Mark Wahlberg. And so um, I started to the embarrassment of my business partner every single meeting for four months. I started my meeting by saying, I know this is a weird question, but does anyone here know Mark Wahlberg or a way to get to Mark Wahlberg? And everyone would burst out laughing. I'd explain the film, I'd explain why we're doing it. And then one day someone said, Yes. <laughs> I know his agent. I will contact his agent. I believe in your project. And next thing you know, we were screening the film to Mark Wahlberg's. Um, second agent in L.A. and they loved it, but he was doing Ted. This Lev or Sarah? This is um, Ari's assistant.
1: Ari the shark, Emmanuel's assistant. Yeah. Yeah.
2: He came on behalf of Ari. (coughs) Right. And they said we would love to do the film, but he's doing Ted and he had another movie coming out, so he won't be able to do any press for you. And it's going to be no good to you because you won't have access to him the way you want. So we would recommend that you don't chase him on this. But if you ever want to talk to us, the door's open. And so we then came back and said, you know, um, what are we going to do? And I'd known Joel a little bit and Joel wanted to see the movie because he just made Warrior and he'd been an MMA fighter and he'd heard about this project. So we sat there while Joel was on the set of... um, Doing the Great Gatsby and him and Nash and his brother came and um, Joel just looked at me and said, "I want to narrate your movie," and he was kind of our first choice, and so it was meant to be. But we'd had this wonderful kind of experience through Hollywood, and and he did a great job, and it was amazing.
1: So, were you disappointed? Take take me through the how you handled because I'm you know I a thing that comes up on this show a lot, and I've had um, Olympians answer this question, I've had all kinds of people answer this question, just the very nature of your career. Is if you play one hundred matches, you are not going to win one hundred. You might make your career on the success of two. Yes. All right. So there is ninety eight times that you get told no. Yes. What have you learned about hearing no, and what have you learned about having to deal with no? I've found I treat it like buying a property, in that the
2: first three times you go to auction, you never get the house that you thought was your dream house, and then you get the apartment or the house or the moment that you were meant to get. And it was better than the other times every time. So no is an edit to your life that it wasn't meant to happen. And if you want to keep going, there will be a yes and it will be what's meant to happen.
1: But sometimes no's feel like, ah, there's no parks here. I fuck Why (laughs) does the world hate me? I want to park on this street. Um, As I've got older, because I'm
2: a doer, I've worked out... Sometimes I've forced things to happen unnaturally and it came with a whole lot of problems and some things you shouldn't force. Some things are meant to be not happening. And so you've just got to deal with that in the process. And so I've stopped really forcing things because it really can create greater negative energy later when you don't make things happen in a natural way
1: using your, your natural skill of uh, persuasion, your ability to tell a story, your ability to say, look, I believe in this story, it's bigger than me, um, and pushing past the nose, what are the signposts that come up to you going, oh, maybe maybe you're on the wrong path here? If you hear something three times, you're meant to make a
2: decision on it. And so the universe is giving you a clear message that you're meant to edit your life at that moment. Now, you may not even hear the, see the signals, but when something happens to me 3 times in quick succession I have to really look at what it is and I have to make a conscious decision to either do it or ignore it at my at my consideration. Can you think of an example? Uh yeah, I if I want like there's a couple of film projects that I've life rights of people I've wanted to get and I think I can't get it and it'll be too far away and then I'll see another small article about it or I'll meet someone that knows them and I go you're meant to do it. And right. so then I start contacting them and the last two times it's worked out and we've got their rights and it's a very exciting thing.
1: All right, so that's when you are on the right path. But yeah. what about when you're on – when?
2: Well, I'll give you the most recent one. There's a lady who has this incredible story. I saw her on Australian Story in 60 Minutes and I wanted to get the rights to do something with her and she kept saying no and then out of nowhere someone mentioned us so we thought it was dead. And I was like, "Well, it's not meant to be." But then she said to someone that we, we've been trying to contact her, and they said you should ring them. Ah. So it was kind of like it was a no, definite no. I don't want to do that. And now it's going to be a maybe to a yes. So <laughs> persistence—if you just keep putting it out there—and yeah. it will hap- if it's meant to happen. Some it will happen in the time frame it's meant to. But have. there's a
1: balance that you found between um knocking on the door stalking and kicking on the door yes AVO stalking oh shit
2: (laughs) but you know what you have to you have to go for it because if you don't no one is there really and you've got an agent and you've got everyone and you've got a team around you and you've had all of that usually it's you that's pushing it forward and you look at the kind of even big movie stars you know vin diesel created and same with a whole lot of actors started making their own short films and creating characters because not the scripts weren't coming they had to do their own thing and then they actually showed why they loved it and then people said i can see you do more that's often over and over and over again they had to create their own vehicle to get noticed
1: now, my my favorite story with that is it's a bit old now but the story of swingers i was gonna say it's johnson and and um vince Vaughn.
2: It's that That was a showcase And a breakout movie in Swingers Is the example
1: yeah. of that That he just, just like No one's calling No I'm gonna write this And I'm yeah. gonna put all my friends in it Yeah And away we go Yeah
2: And it was awesome And now that he's doing Iron Man movies it's Like
1: <laughs> Yeah <laughs> Yeah, he's a great
2: director.
1: He is. I do worry for his health, though. He, you know, he's a long way from that scene where he's in the singlet <laughs> doing the breakup. You know, one if, of the greatest scenes ever. Oh, one of of that. You know why? Because it was my life. <laughs> was it? That was me. I was that neurotic, Mikey. Oh, oh, I was really. Oh, it's the worst. When he rang and then he, g- he broke out. up with. Oh. Uh, it was um, Heather Graham too. It was, was it too? Yeah, yeah it, was it was Heather, Heather Graham. Graham. That was her breakout film. It was Heather Graham. Yeah, yeah. and then she became Roller Girl in Boogie Nights. Yes, it was right after that. This yeah. is true. And uh, Vince Vaughn, back when he was skinny and before he made the woeful decision to do 2 Detective 2. Yeah, that...
2: Well, like, he just nailed it with wedding crushes. He could have hung up his hung job up. strap
1: then. I thought that was awesome. Hung it up from there? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I remember when I, when I grew up in Brisbane, I didn't know anything about Marooba. I didn't know anything about the bar boys. knew nothing about it. All I knew was that the the danger, the the danger in the surf existed at Tweed Heads. The danger in the surf was cool and gatter. Yep. and you just ne- you just didn't go there. If you went yep. from there, you just didn't fucking go there. Yeah. And kids would come back to school with stories of this and that, and oh my god, my dad had to come in and then uh, his dad tried to punch him, and, uh, <laughs> and I thought, fuck that, it sounds like Mad Max with <laughs> surfboards. I'm not going anywhere near it. Well, that's why Mad,
2: that's the way Maroobera was described in The Lonely Planet. Really. In the 1990s, when they extended it down to the suburbs, they said Maroobah is the land that time forgot it's something out of Mad Max was the way Lonely Planet described Maroobah.
1: <laughs> so growing up there, were you aware of the territorial nature of the surf?
2: Yeah, but it's one of those things that it, well, we'd go to Narrabeen and I was more scared of Narrabeen because you don't know who anyone is. Mm. And so when you, I suppose, grow up there, you know who the characters are, you know what their likes and dislikes are, and how they work. And it's just, it's just a respectful thing. I've actually never, in um, you know, forty years of surfing down there, I've never seen a fight in the water. At Marubra, never. I've seen in Narrabeen. I've seen. I've even seen a fight at Foster, but I've never seen one in Marubra. I'm sure I know they've happened, but I've never. It's never really happened. And maybe it's because there sort are. Of, Locals surf there and everyone knows everyone and there's not much argy-bargy between them because they all kind of – they may not be friends, but everyone understands what they're there for and they, I've never seen any trouble ever.
1: What did the, what did the pecking order nature – I mean, a lot of people may not realize that the, the, there is the, un, the unwritten rules of waiting for a line – waiting for a, a wave yes. in a lineup. Yes. Um, in that it's almost like a, a, a silverback gorilla. Yes. Um, Yes. You'll get to pick up the scraps Yes, at the end. What what did learning the rules or the lore, R, L-O-R-E, about that give you that you could then take into the rest of the world take hey, as you got away from the beach?
2: I think surfing in general is uh, they're finding now in business that people that um, do sort of adventure sports or sports in general makes them better business people because they're calmer under pressure and they actually naturally survey the terrain of what's going on and they're reading everyone because when you're doing some of these sports, you, you know, they can be quite dangerous, not that surfing is, but if you look at mountain biking or kind of off-piece snowboarding, surveying the situation and who what's going on is critical. And I think that that's one thing that surfing, you're trying to control something that's moving and out of control, it gives you a really good sense of calm when you go into a meeting because
1: that's not really anything like the ocean can be. You, it's it's not only surveying the situation, it's um, making – you're like an anti-lock braking system. You're making hundreds of decisions a second Yes, as the terrain is changing beneath you and yes. you have absolutely no control except the certainty that you are plummeting yes. or the wave is going to crash or the wave is going to hit that reef. Yes. And there is death okay. at the other end if you don't do something.
2: Yes. And that's quite <laughs> exciting.
1: Like – but you know the back to
2: the pecking order. When there's good surfers in the lineup, growing up or now, you sit and, and enjoy it because it's like the best of anyone. Like if you walk past and see a great tennis player, when you see someone that's really proficient at what they've done, you, it's an artfulness to it that you go. And sure after a while it gets boring if they get all the waves. But when it, but if you are in the lineup with people that can you know, Marubra's generated a lot of amazing surfers. It was good to watch and it still is. Like there's a crop down there now of young kids that um, if they all stay focused, they could end up on tour and we may have another Australian or world champion because there's a really great energy around surfing and and being focused on a great, being a great athlete.
1: Well, what I'm, I've been around the surf industry a little since 2002 when Channel V started doing a lot of work there and I met a bunch of people in the tour and... Um, for a few years there, we travelled with the tour, and I still know one or two people who are who are in it. And what struck me was that here's this sport that millions of people participate in, some more heavily than others, others in certain countries, but there's only 46 spots in this particular lineup and some of these guys are tenured and they aren't leaving in a hurry. Yes. Like at the time, Sonny goes, yeah, he's not going anywhere and yes. no one's going to ask him to step aside. Yes. He'll go when he feels like going. <laughs> yes. um, he'll still wild part <laughs> him in. He'll show My up and like, it's now a 47-man draw, <laughs> Chani's here. Yeah, 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 yeah totally. Um, but that was your only path and it was there'd always been that uh, surfer who didn't go on tour, that surfer who... Um, split aside and, 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 and kind of paralleled out into the, the filmmaking and the art and the music, and they managed to find a way to pay their yep. bills yep. by doing that, by either making films like Albie Falzon or someone like that. Yet I love your thoughts on what do you think the – and we were, we were talking about the technological windows opening up uh, for podcasting to happen okay. Yep. so not only is the recording equipment this little zoom recorder uh, able to then transmit over a high speed data connection that's on a mobile tower to someone's phone which is an ex- astonishing piece of comput- computational equipment um, allowing me to actually just broadcast but you needed four or five things to happen before podcasting could be a thing what's your thoughts on the miniaturization of cameras and the availability of, of cameras and editing technology uh, as far as giving those surfers outside of this pro tour opportunity to pay their bills? Well, there's two things in that.
2: One is um, even if you want to be a pro surfer as a kid now, you have to be multimedia savvy and have your own social plan because brands, there are so many kids out there in skateboarding and surfing, um, skiing, mountain biking, snowboarding that – unless you have your own social strategy, know who you want to be, then brands won't even really look at you properly because talent is only one component of the decision now. So they, there's brands that won't even take a meeting with you unless you actually have your social over 10,000 people because they don't want to go and do the work on a three-year contract to make you famous and then you own your social. So they want to know what you're willing to do and, in communicating and the direct access to you through your own social strategy is bigger than the brand almost. So kids are having these meetings and they have to explain how they're going to get their Instagram up to a certain amount and what, is, what are they doing and how long have they been on Facebook and what are they going to do on Snapchat and what is their content
1: strategy. Holy shit. That, Let's not even talk about if you can land that. Air. That's assumed.
2: That's how you got in the room. And so that and that's all the big brands are talking like that. Ribco, Quicksilver, Red Bull. They, they, nurturing talent is their, their staple thing they do, but how you're going to create a media strategy around people now is very, very, a very big focal point of negotiation and what's going to happen with talent. So all the kids now, they really have to have a filmer and they have to have a plan and they have to have photos and they have to be able to tell a story. Otherwise, the brands, they won't even get noticed. Because there'll be a kid nearly equally as talented as them that has that. And they'll go, I'll take that kid. And I'll give him a better coach. And, like, it's, it's full on. It's just great. Because yeah. the kids are so media savvy. And they're really a okay with story. And they're, re- they're making some great stuff.
1: I saw a couple of years ago, I was at a conference. And I saw he um, was the guy that created Lollapalooza. Uh, it's 2011 now. And he was saying, uh, this person will become the fifth member of the band. Yes, will be the, 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 the social person will become the fifth member of the band. Yes, and their content creation is as important as the music creation.
2: Yes, and so so
1: it's interesting that you say you've got to have a filmer that you because when you look back at how surf has got recognised, it was do you know someone who has a ten thousand dollar long lens? Yes, can you get them out of bed? Can they come down when the surf is on? Yes, can you get them to waste a roll of film on you? Yes, um are you going to be on form when it's your turn in the lineup? Totally. Now, shit, man, you could burn 64 gig of... (laughs) So now, to give you
2: the... I was told five years ago, because he's very, very smart and on it and been a part of this change, Mark Matthews um, said, you fast forward five years' time, the top ten will have their own two filmers, they will have their own editor, and they will be travelling with them like their trainer and their manager used to or their parent, and they will be making... Media out of everything they do. And you look at John John. John John has his own production company. John John Florence. Yes, the number one surfer in the world. He has his own team that literally he owns his own content, he has his own production strategy, and he has three people following him around creating this content for him out of his own staff and deals. And it's exactly the way Mark said it would be. And now he can control his image and what comes out and make film and TV because he knows there's an endless amount of, of outlets to show content. And he wants to control it for him and the stories he wants to tell.
1: He's not waiting for a knock on the door at all. <laughs> no, he's
2: not. He's reinvesting the money that he gets from his sponsors and investing it into what he loves, which is telling stories in films and put on stuff and he's going for it.
1: A guy who's been on this show, Travis Rice, did something very <laughs> similar.
2: Yes, Travis is the same. Him and John John are very similar like that.
1: Yeah. Travis, uh, that guy, you know how every now and you would have met a few guys like this, particularly when you did the documentaries. Guys who are just like just fucking warrior poets. Oh, yeah. We brought Travis out for that tour when you
2: interviewed. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. We 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 flew him out here to open that film, and I've spent time with him on the last trip and this trip. He is not waiting for anyone. He he's making his own
1: things happen. And then, see, ya, I'm off to go live in my boat in Vanuatu. Bye. Yes. Back in six months. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> See you in the winter. And he, the best thing is he found a girl that loves
2: all that stuff too. So he's got a really good partner and he's, you know, going go to go into the next
1: era and he wants to do another film. Man, I'll never forget the first time I saw Art of Flight. My brain stopped working. I could not believe that because having knowing what I know about television production and knowing what I know about, like it's one thing to stick a GoPro to the front of your snowboard. It's another thing to take a Helicopters filming helicopters. With giant, humongous Phantom giant gimbals on the front of them, completely like three different gyroscopes holding it down with the best shooters in the world, the most experienced pilots. And fucking miles away from anywhere in Alaska, no one had ever done that.
2: No. And that's where I think people... Sort of wonder where I think Red Bull have done a lot of really cool things to grow the space that way. Yeah. They've thrown money at technology and and talent to grow the the ability to do stuff like that. yeah, and that's reset things like that. Then sort of drifts back into you know normal movies like Fast and the Furious or Born or whatever. They're like, have you seen that shot? We should think of shooting that way. Yeah, and the coolest story I've kind of heard in recent times is the guy that invented the red camera, which is the staple kind of shooting tool for all of us, was the guy that invented Oakley sunglasses. What a genius. And he said he would do the same thing he did for eyewear for film technology. And, like, his story is incredible. we got to get him on the show. I
1: don't know if I can go to his island. It's out in <laughs> Fiji somewhere, I think. It Apparently.
2: But he's yeah. – what an incredible – I just read um, a book and he was one of the case studies in it. I didn't realise he was the same guy. It's the same font. It is. <laughs> Wow. There you go. Yeah. yeah wow. Yeah, it just, it's just the same like, font. He was epic, yeah. Done doing one thing, he did another thing. I'm sure I'll do something else.
1: Yeah. Moving that was the first, I think that was like the first more compact filmless camera with a sensor that you could absolutely put on a big screen. Yes. On a cinema screen. Yes. And wouldn't be And a it was problem. a
2: fifth of the price of a Sony Canon equivalent.
1: Or an R E. Yeah. You know, just And you could shoot you could put just regular Canon lenses on it, like S L R lenses yes.
2: on it. And he went to the trade show and all of the other guys said he's got to be a shonk, it's not possible to do it at that price and he was taking pre-orders, they said you'll never get your cameras and he's just done it and some of the best cinematographers are just working with him and proving the technology, like it's an amazing story.
1: Oh, sure. Oh, I've seen him slung under drones. I've yeah. Seen yeah. Yeah. It's Bananas.
2: So the GoPro thing changed our access to being in the moment. Didn't it? And that's kind of, I think, been a massive growth in content. Uh, the timing of that brand was incredible where narcissism was the new cocaine. So can I get more of me? <laughs> I'll get a GoPro and a selfie stick and walk around. and how, how much more of you can you get? But on the good side of it, it allowed people access into these sports and these stories and a more intimate feeling of how these people make these critical decisions and the life they're living. I think that, that's been incredible what GoPo's done.
1: Let's talk back about a little about the the trick of, um, I mean, when you made the, the film about the Bra Boys, you're covering subject matter, which is f- sensitive at the least. Yep. All right, because you're dealing with people who have uh, a hell of a story to tell but some of the story they'd prefer wasn't. No. It, yeah, it
2: was it it was we started filming before anything happened and we just kept filming and held on and we just lived through all of it. Um and no one could have predicted and that's why I think you can feel that tension in that movie. And um it was a baptism of fire and then you start adding um, you know, Russell Crowe wanting to get involved and and, and narrate it and help sort of shepherd the project to You know, be an outstanding Australian documentary. So there's a lot of things happening all at once, and the subject matter was something that it's not natural to me. As far as you know, the script that I wrote was about fat kids, and I had been making romantic comedy short films. So I'm talking about out of your comfort zone, but it was this. What it taught me is universal stories. and redemption and inspiration, um, it had everything in that. And I've learned from that that, you know, you've got to look at that matrix of ordinary people in extraordinary situations and those outcomes. And I just loved um, the way that Kobe had gone from having that upbringing to being the best big wave surfer in the world. And, you know, ordinary people achieving extraordinary things was very inspiring. And that, I think, was the, the lead behind. And then we moved into fighting fear to see whether, you know, Mark Matthews, who was scared of the ocean, wanting to be a big wave surfer, you know, and take, you know, the, the lead that Kobe had and Richie being a carpet layer, being a cage fighter, it sort of in a way had the same thing. Can these guys do it? Let's film them for two years and see if they can reach their dreams. And so, you know, we're motivated to get involved with stories which are, I suppose, secret parenting devices because we have, my, my business partner has two kids, I have three kids and they may not listen to me but they may listen to Mark Matthews or see that story and say it's not the mistakes you make, it's the way that you uh, approach them, fix them and, and do it is really what will define you because we all aren't perfect and that's why I think a lot of people like what we do because we show the imperfections but then you can still do it.
1: What about the... And certainly when it comes to the Abitons. Yeah. Do you have to tread carefully? Um, Well, Sonny, that's kind of when we decided to make the movie.
2: I said to Sonny, what what movie do you want to make? You know, this is your story. This is your tribe. This is your family story. And he wrote and directed it. And basically we spent a lot of time talking about it and he was very – passionate about the way that surfing had a stigma and all that history bit, which I think is really cool in orientating where surfers fit into society and all of that. I think he did um, because he was the director and it was the story that we agreed to make. As much as it was a moving target, it was his and that access made it work. So it wasn't me trying to force anything. So at the end of the day that film could have only been made through the family agreeing and doing it. And the way it kind of came together was when we first started talking about, you know, what's a documentary and how is it going to be, the, um, we had a, a team meeting and I said to them, because being professional athletes, all three of them, they're highly competitive. And I just said the most, I said to Sonny and then Kobe later, the most successful documentary in Australia was Gone Cane Toads. And they're like, Cane Toads? we can make a better movie than Cane Toads. And so I think that really galvanised everyone together that we were going to make a documentary that was cooler than Cane Toads. (laughs) And and people didn't realise that we were looking, um, especially with Kobe was still competing and Sonny had had a really great surfing career, we did set out to consciously make um, a, a documentary that would be seen by a lot of people. And it wasn't an accident. And that team spirit, as far as... Let's make something really impactful
1: is what held everyone together. So, so what was the biggest misconception that a guy like me, a blow-in to Bondi from Brisbane who dyed his hair blonde and, and ran around what, that made me terrified of going anywhere south of Coogee? Yeah. What was the biggest misconception that I would have had about those guys? Um,
2: I, I, th- I think the media at the time couldn't – no one was doing interviews and a part of the reason why the film was so successful and so watched is no one had given an official interview on why these guys were getting tattoos and what it was all about and the handshake and all the rest of it. They were just doing it and living their life and they wouldn't all talk about it, which was really cool. So when they agreed to make the movie, it was all going to go in there and it would be explained once. But in the lead-up to that, the press had really started making their own stories up about what it all meant and what was going on and what the kind of there's always been a group of guys at Maruba that have had a name before Bravos that was called you know MRA it was the Maruba Write-Off Association there's always been a tribe mentality of guys down there so the Bravoys was only the most recent iteration of that and there's a lot of older guys that have done stories and, and had kind of their own tales to tell so it, I I'd say that when you get a group of 200 guys together in any sporting code or any beach, there's not going to be um, perfect people in it. And I think because no one had talked or let it in, the hunger for it sent the whole press rife and sideways. And so when the film did hit... Um, and that's kind of where we wanted to start the media process properly and we got Kobe to do Australian Story. And I think people were really surprised about his story... And a lot of people were saying, why would you do that and reveal so much of his story before the film came out? Because we wanted to handle the material correctly and not just go and do some salacious thing. And um, I think a lot of people started thinking what is their story about and what is
1: the movie about? And the Australian story was a key part of that. So you mentioned uh to, I just want to get the, the idea and, and kind of talk a bit about... You, you mentioned before, back when you're getting your film made... Um, you know the, you, get, you get yeses you ask questions and you get, you get yeses what changes about a project once you uh, the, the, the word attachment is used a lot yeah. what changes about a project once you get the right person attached um, for example you talked earlier about Mike Wahlberg, Mark Wahlberg, Mike Wahlberg it didn't yeah. happen but say for example no 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 we've, we've got it's sunny. We've got the guy yep it's his show yeah so
2: yeah um, well there's a lot of boring stuff about filmmaking or the creative business process is the legals and so unless you have the rights to something um, and legally can prove to people through the chain of title then you can't attach anything so the, the what we've I'd say I've learned the most about in the last sort of 15 years is how important the foundation of your legal um, built on the rocks and not the sand. So until you have everything buttoned up, so if it was um, bra boys, we needed to get the abidans rights to tell their story. With the, everything we do, we start with that and that can take a long time and things can fall over there. Even before you start that process, though, you've really got to sit down with them and all agree you're going to make the same movie or the same TV series and agree on the outcome of what it's about. And if you, in my experience, if you actually all agree on that, ego goes out the window because you come together and say, we've all agreed that this is what it's about and we're all going to make that for these outcomes. And that becomes the the compass document or the compass principle of what you're doing.
1: Not everyone's going to be making a movie. Some people are listening to this say, I don't know, they may want to... It could be an art show. It yeah. could be
2: a coffee table book. It could be whatever. It could we... be,
1: it could be the, an F45 they're trying to get up. You know, it could be, yeah. could be anything. What is it that you found about finding the right... You talked about finding the right mentor before. What about finding the right kind of the right partner? What are you looking for, the right person to attach? Well, it comes back to... We just did a film recently um,
2: with a guy who's a um, quadriplegic... And they wanted us to help make his documentary. And we sat, I sat with them for two days before we agreed to get involved and finance it and build the film because I wanted to make sure we were all making the same movie. And with that particular story, his, his journey was quite obvious. He was uh, an emerging pro surfer that had been put into a tree at 100 kilometres an hour as a passenger um, you know, 15 years ago and he wanted he wants to eventually surf again. Um, what, was, what wasn't obvious and they hadn't talked about and hadn't, wasn't in the film is he's got this beautiful wife and she was in an emotional wheelchair till she met him. So I said, look, if we get involved, we want to make a love story. And they had to agree on that and we all agreed and we wrote a treatment and we then attached the right, you know, director and, and got the right process around that once we all agreed what we were making. So I don't know if that's answering the question. But then you start going with that, who has done something like that, who should score it, who mm. will shoot it, and who's really into that. And that's how the team starts building itself. And back to that phone call bit we start ringing people because mm. you know what it's about and you can sell it from your heart and in a logical plan, then that's when people want to be attached to it.
1: And it, gains, it kind of gains momentum. Yes, right?
2: from that knowing what you're doing, knowing the why uh-huh. is the most important bit because if you're going to explain that and it's greater than you, that comes back to the full circle in the and we've conversation. Got,
1: we've got him, we've got his wife, this person's in. Oh, wow, that's going to be great. That sounds yeah, exciting. He's Mick Fanning's best friend and he dedicated his,
2: world title to, his third world title to him and the real story is that he wouldn't ma- get married until he could kneel to ask her and then stand at the altar and dance, all medically impossible. And he knelt, he stood, and he danced at his wedding. And that's why once we worked all that bit out, everyone wanted to be involved
1: in that movie. And who doesn't? Yeah. And you, do you find when you're making those kind of stories, people don't ask about the check too much at the totally. head? Right. We had people give music, we had
2: people help, and we decided for the first time not to get a narrator because their story didn't need to be heightened. The story was good enough on its own to not go and get a, you know, when I first thought about it, I wanted to go get someone like Lord to narrate it or go and get a female voice and and how hard it is to find the right person and, you know, falling in love as we come full circle in this conversation is difficult. But once we started editing it, we're like, we don't need a narrator. This just stands on its own. Their love story is driving it every day against adversity. We don't need anyone talking over the top to give you clues or heighten it. It's just amazing, especially when he does dance. (laughs)
1: So now everyone's going to have to go and see it.
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll send you a DVD. <laughs> I
1: don't know how to... oh, Well, you'd go on the garage
2: platform and watch it. Oh, you've got a platform? Yeah. There you go. Yeah, I'll give you a, a, whole... a code and you'll watch it tonight. It's a whole new world. Get the tissues. I'd love to. Cry um, three times, I promise <clears> you. Oh, wow. And did you like living in Los Angeles?
1: I... L- moved for a variety of different reasons. I moved there to, I mean, at the time uh, I'd met someone and, and I, you know, I'd gone, I thought as far as I could go in this country, I didn't know what to do next. I was on this trajectory. And my, it's a complicated story because at the time I was like, well, I want to go and see what I can do uh, on the world stage. Let's go. Yep. But also it was like I got there and was like, oh, wow, I can do groceries oh, this is great, I can just, you know, go get a coffee and not have people run all over me. This is nice. Yeah. So part of it was going away to hide. Yeah. Um, and through that, I, the earliest parts of my career, radio, Channel V, I was the one knocking on the doors. Yeah. Um, then Idol came along and then I got out of the habit of knocking on the doors, all the offers were coming in, and then I got to Los Angeles and I really didn't know what I know now about creating your own work and everything kind of ground to a, ground to a halt. And uh, I found it, I found it okay until I went and worked, I went to Amsterdam for a while at a business school there. Um, and once I saw how a different society can live in a first world country, that America isn't the, uh, the peak of the mountain. In fact, it's, it's not even base camp. Uh, <laughs> it's this it's, it's slowly degenerating kind of system that is telling itself it's fantastic as it's sinking. Yeah. Um, it became kind of frustrating. And as, at the same time, the market shifted from under me. They stopped making the big live shiny floor stuff. Yeah. Uh, I have a very specific set of skills. I can host a, a giant live many moving parts you know, multi-camera, shiny floor TV show and have you out by 10, and 16 frames so you can hit the Grand Prix on time. Yes. You know? But there's not many people that could do that. Yes. All right? But they're just not making that kind of TV anymore. No. And that's fine. Yes. Um, but it became very evident that they were now casting people based upon their pre-fame. So I think I'd lost, I lost two jobs in a row, one to an Olympian and one to a wrestler. And I thought shit, not, you can't host live TV, nor can you. Yes, you've got, you know, but you've had hundreds of millions of dollars of marketing thrown into you before you even stood on set. Yes. They'll make it work. Yes. And, okay, so I'm not needed anymore. So that's when I started getting into development and that's the development path that brought me back to Australia. But plus I met, you know, Audrey and beautiful Georgia and uh, I was like, hang on, I can live in Australia and do this job and, and not be in America. I'm out. <laughs> and have you loved it? Uh, Yeah, I was 10 years there in the end. Um, It's certainly very interesting. It taught me a lot about uh, the business, taught me a lot about the world. It taught me a lot about um, how the whole uh, system works. Um, And it also taught me a lot about how freaking incredible Australia is as a country and that what we're told on the ACA and the news every night everything's terrible, everyone's losing jobs, the world's worse, the hospital's terrible. It's like, no, it's not. You can, and it happened. It was unfortunate, but it happened, you know. Last year at Bondi, there was a kid in a big swell, went out for a swim and didn't come back. For five days, two helicopters searched the coastline for six hours a day. Any other country would be like, bad luck, mate. Yeah. Australia? We're like, no, it's important. Yeah. It's important to find this person's body. Yeah. You know, you can, you can fall over on the street. You can fall over doing something stupid with a, with a bloody GoPro, compound fracture your femur, and in less than five minutes, a highly trained ambulance with enough equipment on it to save a freaking, you know, any medical emergency will show up and take you somewhere to, for free and they'll figure out how to pay for it later. Yes it's mind-blowing when you look around the country and you would have seen it as you travelled around the world. When you look around the world, there's societies where it's like, oh, you fell over filming yourself doing something stupid? Bad luck, mate. And In America, that could be a 20 grand bill. And the rest? Yes. Oh. That's only if you just hurt your finger. I, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've been to a hospital with a mate who partied a little too hard and it was 7000 bucks for two IV drips. No. That was bananas. The, yeah, I,
2: the thing about technology... Is, and it's it's made it that you can really work from anywhere. Yeah. And But I, I read an article maybe 20 years ago and Peter Weir said, look, I live at Palm Beach. I, I'm going to stay at Palm Beach. I will go to work on a jumbo to get a deal or a film up and then I'll come back to Palm Beach. Why would I live anywhere else? That's right. And I thought at the time, that's a, that's a really cool way of thinking about it. But the world's even got smaller now where... He could probably not even get on the plane to go do the deal. And as virtual
1: reality comes, he'll just put the headset on and everyone will be sitting at a table. Oh, man, Peter Jackson directing Lord of the Rings over FaceTime, <laughs> which he was doing, that's something else.
2: I didn't know that. That's,
1: uh, oh, yeah, there was. he was um, no way, really? in his pyjamas and they'd rigged up the Video Connect so he's watching all the splits, uh, the video no. splits to his house. No way. Yeah, there you go. He's when he's watching it over FaceTime. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and his wife's there. They're doing the script editing. That's awesome. you know? Yeah, and why wouldn't you want to live here outside? The
2: thing that when we have visitors come, like you go from the airport and they're having coffee at Bronte, and they go, but where's the where's the Wait, like, how do you live like this? I said, this is how we really live. Like in Los Angeles, you know, it's a car park and it's terrible. And there's not one moment you're in Los Angeles where you're in Los Angeles. In Sydney, you can have ten great moments all
1: ten minutes away from each other. Yeah, well, this part of Sydney. You can go to other parts of Sydney that aren't yeah. so wonderful. Yes. Uh, well, they're probably wonderful in their own ways, but not wonderful in ways that someone who enjoys the ocean yes. is like. I've got a mate who's um, – him and his uh, wife are two mates of mine, actually. They're from, bon- uh, from Los Angeles at the moment. And he's, a, he's an ultra triathlete. So he does Ultraman, which is the double Hawaiian Ironman distance yeah, yeah, over wow. three days. He's an absolutely vegan, just incredible guy, lovely human being. And um, he was up with jet lag at three in the morning. I was, you know, just leaving work. And so I'm texting him it's like, make sure when the sun comes up, just go down to the beach and turn right. Just keep running until you hit Koji." <laughs> and I was looking at his Instagram this morning. He's like, this is a place. <laughs> this is a real place. Yes. yes. Yes, Richie. This is a real place. Yes. People, people actually, actually live here. But um, I'm, you know, when I think about when I grew up, certainly in Brisbane, there was this feeling that our stories weren't worth telling, that what we had to say wasn't great because we never saw it. You know, you can't be what you can't see, and we never saw Brisbane stories getting told on TV. We only ever saw stories about Melbourne or, or Sydney. Yes. You know, and that you're telling stories, Australian stories. Um, I think it's very important because I think a lot of the time we as an English-speaking culture look, many years we looked at the UK and what we did was never as good as that. We yes. always put ourselves below that. And in many ways now I've, I feel that, you know, some of us, some Australians have were putting, you know, our stories aren't as good as this American story yep. um, to tell. But I, I, I really feel more and more that it's, it's almost our responsibility to tell Australian stories and not let our cultural difference be swallowed up by chasing the buck in, yes. in the States. And countries become
2: fashionable as far as where it's from, like the whole Scandinavian thing on drama. They're considered, you know, the best guys on drama and before that region owned, you know, the best formats for reality TV. So why that hasn't come out of America? The voice wasn't created in America. Yeah. It was created... The other side of the world. And so why can't that be
1: created in Australia? The Dutchies, man. They're, they are. And Endermoll, well, They know what they're doing. A friend
2: of mine's married to a Dutchie and she said, you haven't had much till you've had Dutch. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of TV
1: executives that believe that. Oh, man. I miss it. I want to take the girls back there. Um, cool, man. Well, look, I'm, I'm just really grateful you came over. I Thanks this time around.
2: And I knew you did this with Travis. And I, I'm here to celebrate the digital interference and... And one of my favourite shows ever was the Goodies. So I've now sat on pirate radio. Oh yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. And,
2: and you don't have a, even have a submarine. You have got a really cool place. Yeah, in, in I,
1: Bronte. And uh, I do have a walk in the Black Forest somewhere. Some herb velvet. I do, do, have, no I do have, have some walk herb, herb Forest somewhere. I'm sure I can. I'm sure I can put it on. Um, cool man. Thanks for coming around. Man, keep doing this. We you should be
2: doing the um, visual version next. Oh, vision, visual? Yeah, like Periscope, you can do this and put it out there. Oh, Facebook Live. It's the, Facebook Live, yeah. The Mac
1: Pro in the other room. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, getting lights in it All,
2: over there. Although it's better for me. I have a better head
1: for radio. <laughs> Look, I'm trying to get the DVN connection in here um, uh, because our radio show uh, uses this really interesting program called Virtual Director, yeah. um, which basically awaits for an audio signal. And then cuts on the audio signal, so you can basically. It was no, started no. for there was a, a radio. He still is he's very successful. A radio broadcaster, called Chris Evans, in the state in the UK. Yeah, I don't know. Who and he is. when they put his Virgin Radio show on Sky, they were. So they basically rigged up a system that when it detected an audio signal, it would cut the camera. And that they now export that to uh, radios all over the, the world. And um, uh, for example, uh, I think in Today FM they've got it. Kiss FM, they've got it, um, and it just you know it just cuts as as you go, as you talk, and so more and more radio is becoming multi-platform, which is why I got into radio again. I mean, I've always been in radio, but why I started doing a breakfast show because I'm really interested in multi-platform, yes. and, and digital disruption and broadcasting, and um, but because I'm down here for six months of the year, we've got to find a way to get a camera um, happening here. So I'm working hard on making uh, the back wall of my office. Um, look like the inside of the studio in Brisbane. Awesome. Um, oh yeah, I'm getting this. I've got the same microphone. I've got the same pop filter. I've got so the shot looks the same. Um, but we just need to get a stable and a video connection out of here. Uh, and up you're to, on up to Brisbane. Yeah. And the bandwidth you need for streaming isn't massive, but you need it to be reliable. So yes. Um. Once you start, unfortunately, once you start getting into the absolute tragedy of not putting fiber to the premises in our country. It's just so sad when you think about what we could have had and the cost it's now going to get to get a fiber connection here. It's just... It's expensive. Mate. It's ridiculous. It, it's just... It's, it, we were just in Africa and we were getting <laughs> faster fucking internet in the middle oh, of the jungle.
2: We have this... Yes, Kenya's better. Yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> So, we've got a new film coming out. You have to come and look at it. Yeah, what is it? Taylor Steele, who's probably the greatest uh, filmmaker ever. Ever. We've just finished a film with him. Wow. Um, Starring um, John John Florence and Kelly Slater. as one whole section. Um, At at a film level, there's moments in that where you've got, it's like out of heat where you've got Pacino and De Niro in the same thing. We have uh, Rob Machado and Craig Anderson, Steph Gilmore and Rasta, and um, Shane Dorian and Albie Layer, and wow. it's taken two years to film, shot in 6K and virtual reality. And Holy it comes out in May, moly. and you will love it. Wow. The virtual reality we have um, Craig Anderson and Rob Machado surfing around you when you put the headset on, ah. and you can almost high five Craig Anderson as he goes by. Wow! So this technology thing, I, I'm I'm sure you'll be doing. Radio in virtual reality very
1: soon. I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it, but in just the Just as the connections here, the fibre will go in and you'll Yeah, go. but in the same way, in the same way that, I mean, when I started in radio, 1994 I started, what we're doing right now was impossible. Uh, the kind of television that was being made is imp- was impossible. Uh, but now everyone has access. I, I can, if I wanted to, I could shoot and edit... Uh, if I was really into prime lenses, an entire film on my iPhone if I wanted. Yes. All right? Does that make me a great filmmaker? No. <laughs> so more and more in my... In my when I look at the, what's happened in the past and what happens now, um, access to the technology to tell the story is one thing, but being able to tell the story is another thing. And more and more the authenticity and quality of content is what will win. It will no longer be um production values that win it's like you can't just have a, a flashy like if you look when after star wars came out suddenly all these space movies lots of things that flashed and exploded turned up yeah but the stories were shit yep but if you can tell a great story it doesn't matter if you're shooting it on a phone uh on your high eight, or in four camera 3d vr whatever if the story's great it'll be okay and i think that's that's where that well, that's proven. You can have a substandard picture, but if you don't have the story or the audio, it will never work. This is true. It's the audio that's the. That's
2: Hence, the, we're on radio.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and brought to you by Roadie Procaster, <laughs> the finest podcasting mic there is. Australian mate, beautiful. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to take your photo real quick. All right. Yep. That was Michael Lawrence. You can find out all about what he does at garageentertainment.com.au. If you want to watch movies about um, action and adventure and people having adventures in all parts of the world while they're riding bikes or snowboards or surfboards or skis or boogie boards or whatever, motorcycles, you'll find it. There at Garage Entertainment. Thanks again to everyone that supports the show on Patreon. Patreon.com/slash Osher is where you can put some money each month towards making this show what it is. If this show does bring you any value, I would be very, 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 very grateful if you would pledge uh, five bucks, at least five bucks a month, which is the price of a fancy cup of coffee or half a smoothie, depending on where you're shopping. And that will make sure this show gets to air because the only reason this show comes each week is because people like you support the show. This show uh, can only succeed because it is uh, made by the magnificent Andy Maher, my producer, Hayley Van Spagno, who is my production coordinator, and, of course, Toa Hyder with the great music that you're listening to right now. Until I speak to you next week, thank you so much for listening. Uh, If you could recommend this podcast to another person in your life, that would be the best thing you could do for me right now. Until we talk next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things.